Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater company based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of performing artists, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art forms. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, I am so excited to be talking with my dear friend and colleague, Anne Mueller, Artistic Associate for Ballet Idaho. Anne received her training from Dame Sonia Arova and Thor Satowski, very difficult names to pronounce, the Washington School of Ballet and the Kirov Academy. She began her professional career with Alabama Ballet, later joining Oregon Ballet Theater, where she enjoyed a 15-year career. She became a principal dancer for OBT and danced leading roles in works by George Balanchine, James Gadelka, Christopher Wielden, Twyla Tharp, Jerome Robbins, Paul Taylor, Trey McIntyre, Nicola Fonte, and had numerous original roles created for her by Christopher Stoll and others. After retiring from the stage, Anne held several positions on the artistic staff of OBT, including artistic coordinator, director of artistic operations, and interim artistic director. As a choreographer, Anne's work has been performed by Oregon Ballet Theater, Alabama Ballet, Ballet Victoria, Bodyvox, and the Portland Ballet, where she also held a position as co-artistic director. Anne was also a co-founder of Trey McIntyre Project, performing as a company artist from 2005 to 2007, and also serving as the organization's, organization's founding managing director. Hey, Anne, welcome to Foolish Voices. Hey, Scott, I'm so happy to be here. I miss your face. I miss your face too. Are you okay? I am okay. Are you okay? I'm okay. Good. I'm a little I'm 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 a little cabin fevery, has to be said. Yeah, no, I feel that. We've just passed, I think, the one month mark, and I felt a sort of marked shift in this last week. Really? Like in yeah. what way? Are you pacing a lot? Are you well drinking yeah. more than you usually do? <laughs> A little bit of that. I'm eating ice cream every single day and <laughs> uh, need to be exercising a little bit more. I'm just I'm feeling more acutely aware of how active I typically am physically in my job and am uh, not able to keep up with that same level of physical activity at home. So that is something I'll need to be addressing in the coming weeks. <laughs> I look forward to not participating in that effort. Uh, you are the healthiest person I know, and I just feel like you're healthy enough for all of us. So is that well, okay? yes, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Any reason for me to sit on my butt and drink wine and watch Marvel movies. That's basically all I'm looking for. How's, how's Ballet Idaho holding up? Ballet Idaho is holding up pretty darn well, I think. Um, we actually just had one of our Zoom staff meetings this morning. We do those on a weekly basis, and it's great to get an opportunity to check in with everyone, both about like personal lives and about more professional concerns. And, um, you know, it feels like everybody's 
cautious and aware of of all of the challenges we're facing but i feel like everyone is adopting a very uh, productive and creative and adventurous spirit in figuring out how we're going to navigate what lies ahead well that that's that's good yes totally because the alternative would be terrible so yeah, indeed and right. if if i'm remembering correctly the um the state, the Idaho state sort of shelter in place order and social distancing, it that did have a pretty significant impact on Ballet Idaho and its programming, right? It, it did, absolutely. Um, it felt, and I'm sure everybody feels this to an extent, but it felt to me, and also partially because I was in the, the sort of vacuum of tech week and performance week and being really hyper-focused on what was happening there, it felt like we went from very normal life to everything changes in like 48 hours. It felt like it all happened very quickly. So we were in uh, tech week for our spring mixed repertory program, Light Dark. And I think it was Tuesday morning of that week, we heard that Tree Fort Music Festival, which is a gigantic and really cool festival that happens every year here in Boise, they announced, I believe it was Tuesday morning, that they were postponing until September. And when I saw that, I thought, whoa, okay, you know, we need to be putting our, our thinking hats on and, and get prepared for, um, you know, the possibility that this might happen to us as well. So we on the staff started talking pretty immediately about alternatives. And um, we're very lucky to have a close partnership with a video production company called Front Runner Films that's located here in Boise. They do all of our promotional video footage. So we were pretty quickly able to have them um, arrange to be at our dress rehearsal with multiple cameras. So we sort of shifted into, this is our plan B, we're gonna do a multi-camera shoot. If for some reason we have to cancel, then we'll have the materials for um, an exciting digital broadcast. Typically we just shoot archival footage, which is like a static wide shot, um, which isn't the most engaging way to watch dance on film. <laughs> so um, I'm super grateful that we had the relationship and we had the um, the sort of will and know-how on the staff to figure out how to make that work. And um, it ended up being a real blessing that we did because we did in fact end up having to cancel. So um, I think we made that call midday Thursday. Yeah, I think it was midday Thursday and our dress rehearsal was Thursday night and our opening night was to have been Friday night. So it all, as I said, happened very, very quickly. Um, but the outcome of the film shoot was was really wonderful. It took us a couple of weeks to edit everything together and figure out the mechanics of how to distribute it. But um, but we did, and I think almost seventeen hundred people saw it. That's that amazing. That, That's yeah, amazing. that we yeah yeah exactly. So um, so we kind of started this whole thing. I think feeling like. You know, we made some good decisions and we we had a win, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so interesting because I think, you know, you and I have kind of chatted about this off, off the podcast um, before, but just about this sort of rush from performing arts organizations to try and get all of their content online. Um, 
what are the, how do you feel about that for, for ballet and for dance, broadly speaking? I mean, I, as a, as someone who is a fan of ballet, mostly because I love you and um, love your work, uh, I have a really hard time sort of wrapping my head around whether or not the experience of watching ballet on film would get me as excited and energized as an audience member. What are your What are your thoughts? Hey, um, I mean, I have I have sort of opposing thoughts on that. Good. Um, like I was saying, you know, typically when we record dance, it's for archival purposes, so it's a very static wide shot um, that that does not really mimic the experience of being in a live audience at all. Um, so I think sharing a lot of that type of content can have sort of mixed, um, mixed reactions to it. I think if you're, uh, really a lover of dance and you watch a lot of dance, you can sort of see past the limitations of that kind of filming to the quality of the content. But I think for a more, uh, typical audience member, that kind of experience is probably not going to, to really move people um, the way that we want to move them. Um, so there's that. So I think, you know, if we can, if we can make the plans to, to do these types of filmings in a deliberate way, um, that's a little bit more um, intimate and sort of changes the, the perspective of viewing, I think that that can be a much more engaging experience. So if we're moving into a time when we're going to be experiencing dance more that way, we have to be more inventive about how we're filming. Um, the other sort of pieces of that are that there's, there's some mechanical challenges, or mechanical is not really the right word, but uh, typically the, the rights of use agreements that a company has with designers, choreographers, um, music rights, and et cetera, restrict uh, broadcasting possibilities. So it has not in the past been a very easy thing for a ballet company to convert the content that they would prevent, present, excuse me, in the theater to convert that to a film experience. Um, I think what we're going through now is going to initiate a big change in that. And I think there could be some positive things that, that come out of that. That is that is a remarkably similar experience to what we as Company of Fools and theaters all across the country are going through right now around performing rights agreements with with playwrights and with rights holders that, you know, for for years, decades, there have been these restrictions about nope, you can't can't show my work on film, you can't record it, you can't broadcast it on YouTube, you can't do a live stream. And now, of course, every theater on the planet is sort of saying, well, if we can't do that, then we're gonna just be dark, right? There's no, there's no way for us to to sort of keep ourselves in front of the the minds and in the in the vision in the hearts of our audiences. Um, but it is it is remarkably challenging. And also I think there's a lot of resistance. Um, there's an assumption on the part of a lot of folks that, oh, we're just going to go back to the way it was. You know, right. it'll be a couple of months and then everyone will be flooding back into theaters and we won't ever have to think about or worry about this again. Are you right. finding, are you finding that the dance world is sort of has that level of resistance or are people a little bit more ahead of the game saying, oh my gosh, this is, this is a whole new world and we don't know how long this is going to last. So we may as well get ahead of it. I think, you know, I've been a little bit within the vacuum of my organization, so I can really only speak with authority about what we're 
sort of feeling and experiencing. And I think we're envisioning a lot of different ways that things can work and are trying to see the possibility and the opportunity that um, that this situation presents us. And, and I imagine that that is probably what most organizations are doing and will continue to do. Um, ballet has had to fight to survive <laughs> in this country for a long time um, against all kinds of factors. And I think that it's, it's a pretty resilient group of people that have chosen to dedicate their lives to it. So I have a lot of faith in our ability as a as an industry or as a sub industry to to survive and emerge and evolve. Well, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Sure is. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, hooray! I don't want you and Lars having to move in with us because ballet goes under. I just don't want it. That's all right. I know, I know, and our dogs might not get along. I know. Mars will hog the hot tub all the time. And it just oh, I know. Be and I'll eat all the deviled eggs. I know. That is a problem. I forgot about the deviled eggs thing. It's a real problem. Um, so, Ann Mueller. Yes. When did you start dancing and why did you become a ballet dancer? Okay. My origin story. Yeah. When did I start dancing? I started dancing in a, in a not very engaged or serious way quite young when we were still living in Germany. I have a memory of participating in like a creative movement class when we lived there. All I can remember from that is like pretending to be an elephant. <laughs> um, so that's You're like, it. I'm in, I'm hooked. Yeah, yeah, the elephant thing. No, that did not grab me. Um, my, my sister was really into gymnastics. This was the era of, you know, the 1984 women's, uh, US women's team did great at the Olympics. It was right on the heels of Nadia Comaneci and we were in Europe. So um, I was really kind of mesmerized by the world of gymnastics. So that was kind of my interest. And when we came back to the States, we came back to the DC area. My mom, I think felt like in the DC area, we had a lot more activity that was accessible to us. So I felt like I was pretty immediately en enrolled in a lot of stuff. Um, and she felt like if I was going to do anything with the gymnastics, I had to have ballet training. So she enrolled me in some ballet classes, although my first one was a combo, 30 minutes tap, 30 minutes ballet. So, oh, do you remember yeah. any of the tap? Oh yeah, totally. I, I should have probably kept it up with the tap because mm. I think it would be super fun to go back to. Um, and maybe I still will. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So... I kind of went along with that for a while and I was not really taken by it. Um, and I should say I was studying at like a strip mall dance studio, which those, you know, those serve a great purpose. And a lot of people have wonderful experiences there, but the experience I was having in that type of environment was not really grabbing me. Um, so I had asked my mom, can I, can I take jazz? This ballet thing is just, pretty subdued. I think I need a little more excitement. I want to take jazz. And um, she said, she's a wise woman and she's a classically trained pianist. So she has like a real value for the classical arts. Um, she said, give it six weeks, enroll in this new school year, give it six weeks and in six weeks, if you still don't want to do it, you can quit. And that was kind of a turning point because uh, a teacher had come onto the staff at this dance studio 
who um, had had a professional career as a ballet dancer. She had danced at New York City Ballet. So she really knew a thing or two. And pretty immediately, the nature of the ballet classes I was taking changed entirely. And there was this, uh, this set of expectations that she had for us. And she expected a certain decorum in the room. She wanted us to you know, uh, have proper attire. And there was, there were just suddenly all these rules that I thought were really cool. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I get it. Okay. This is a lot harder than I thought it was. And so she pretty quickly changed my, my mind about ballet from wanting to quit to wanting to dedicate my life to it in a very short period of time. And she also, um, had the, I don't know, courage or presence of mind, or I'm, I'm not sure what, but she reached out to my parents and let them know that she felt that I had aptitude and um, that if they wanted to commit to the, the difficult path of raising a child and that's training to be a classical ballet dancer, if they wanted to get into that, she felt like I might be able to do something with it. So she, she gave them that information and then started nudge them in a direction that would uh, take me towards more serious training. So that's, that's the story. That's how I fell in love with it. From an elephant yes. movement class, yes. avoiding jazz hands, jazz dance, and straight mm -hmm. into an internationally acclaimed career as a ballet dancer. I love that story. You're very generous. <laughs> well, I mean, I have actually seen you dance a whole bunch. It's true. And and I, I have also gotten to know a lot of people through you and through our mutual friend, Christopher Stoll, uh, in the ballet world. I mean, you, you get to, not only did you dance all over the place, but you also have been working with, as a choreographer and as a stager all yeah. across the world, um, doing amazing stuff. Um, can I ask you, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question. Exciting. But I'm going to ask now. What's your okay. favorite role? Oh man, that's a toughie. Um, I have a lot of favorite roles and I know that's not maybe a fair. It's totally unfair, answer. but okay. Not a fair answer, but it's true. It's true. Um, so a lot of career highlights, I would say, um, I did the Dark Angel and Serenade by George Balanchine. And that was like a breakthrough role for me. I was mostly just doing corps de ballet level roles and um, Elise Bourne was the stager that came to Oregon Ballet Theater and um, I think she really went to bat for me to get to do that part and I'm so grateful to her for that because it was a big career changer. I got a lot more opportunity after that so I would put that one on the list for sure. Um, Duo Concertant was another Balanchine Ballet that was really exciting to do. It felt like it felt like a, a hugely cathartic and meaningful experience to dance it, whether I was in the studio rehearsing mm. or on stage. So that was kind of a big um, realization, revelation or change as an artist to sort of uh, encounter this idea that my experience doing the work is kind of equally important in one place versus the other. It's not mm. all about the show. So I'd say that was important. Um, I did this part called The Novice in Jerome Robbins' The Cage, which is a wonderfully strange ballet 
about insects. And I like doing parts like that because my natural inclination towards movement is uh, a bit, I guess, aggressive or sort of sharp. And uh, I don't know, I liked things that felt very powerful. And a lot of the roles for women in classical ballet are very uh, lyrical and elegant and, and a little bit more restrained. So when roles like that came along, I, I really dug into them. And then, as you mentioned, Christopher Stoll, we worked together for years and I had the great pleasure of working with him um, as he created a lot of works. And I think my very favorite thing was to be a part of new work. I loved the exchange between choreographer and dancer and um, just getting to be a part of the creation of something. So I would say lots of stuff that we did together. And then, we can't not talk about Kabuki Titus. Oh, I, I actually wasn't even wasn't even fishing for a compliment around Kabuki Titus, but because I mean, yes, we you and I worked together uh, at my previous theater company. You were kind enough and possibly bored enough to agree to join me in a an adaptation of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which we did in a Kabuki style with a nine piece orchestra sort of performing live music with this original great, score an original score uh, yeah. by our friend Tyler Neist and um and yeah you sort of you kind of you, you really you knocked that out of the park I think it's probably some of the best critical response to uh, a Shakespeare adaptation that I have ever had as a director um was I think largely because of what you brought to your performance as Lavinia you're very kind. It was it was such a cool and interesting experience for me, um, sort of existing inside this this culture. Or I don't I don't really know how to describe it. Be, but because everybody else in the cast, you know, they they had their dialogue. Their character was defined by your guidance and the dialogue. But um, I was completely silent. So I was kind of like this weird little satellite in in the piece and um getting to create my create the content choreograph the movement that i was doing in collaboration with your guidance was a really super interesting experience it was really fun and i i can remember i can remember you and i talking about it and me being like yeah i don't really know anything about dance and so you should just make sure you do a really good job and we'll see you on opening night right like i i'm, I'm not a choreographer and to have to have the opportunity the the character of lavinia in our adaptation as you say is completely silent doesn't speak at all and does and communicates everything about her experience and it's a really horrible dark tragedy um communicates all of her experience through movement uh and yeah it was super fun it was hard it was, it was challenging hard. it was hard yeah yeah i mean how how many different ways can you physically express agony <laughs> you know 137 if i remember correctly yeah yeah, it was it was fun. Well, I'm glad that makes the list. You're just saying that because I'm interviewing you, but it's, it's quite your list. I love that list. Yeah. So what what I think is amazing is that your experience as a dancer and you know, talking about your work with Christopher Stoll and you know, being a part of the creation of new work, I mean, that really has informed your career as a choreographer as well, right? So once you retired from dancing, 
not only have you continued your extremely competent work as a as a, a sort of manager and an organizer and a, an executive, sort of you know, uh, on the on the operational side of performing arts organizations, but you're also still doing a lot of work as a choreographer, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think right now in terms of the balance, I, I am choreographing. That is part of the work that I'm doing. But I think the the bulk of what I'm focusing on right now is uh, training dancers and staging ballets and assisting uh, the choreographers and stagers we work with in bringing the works that they're responsible for to our dancers. So mostly I'm doing that work at Ballet Idaho, but I have been doing some um, outside staging and rehearsal assisting and guest teaching um, work as well. So the choreography, I, I love to do it, and I'm super happy when those uh, opportunities arise, but I have not focused a ton on like aggressively pursuing those opportunities and I don't really know why that is <laughs> maybe it's because I'm really busy and fulfilled I was gonna with say you've got a lot of stuff going on you it's true, it's true. Real busy. yeah and I do I think you know this about me I think I'm I'm most sort of engaged when I feel like I get to operate in a lot of different types of ways so. Yeah, yeah. You you have a your your brain and your energy works on multiple levels all at the same time. So <laughs> when you're when you're only asked to do one thing, I don't know that you're that happy. Um, can I tell you something about when when so my husband and I came to see um, Bally Idaho's uh, rep that was presented. What was it about a month and a half ago? You Which, saw New Dance. New Dance, correct? Yeah, inside and, the yeah, yes. which which was which was wonderful. And we had a great time. Um, but I can Brian said to me, oh, you know, we had seen a couple. I think he had seen only one other piece of yours when you were still at, at Portland Ballet. Um, but I've seen a couple. Of, I've seen you dance a bunch of times and I've seen other things that you've choreographed. And he asked me before we drove to Boise, he was like, what? What? What's what's Anne's sort of deal when it comes to choreography? And I was like, hmm. Good I, I think the way I described it was that she finds the epic in the commonplace. Wow. Or, or the beautiful, the beautiful sort of grandness in stuff that we would normally think of as being simple. Does that sound at all right? Am, or That's am I just amazing? And I feel like I need to write it down so I can use that. <laughs> you can use it as a pull quote if you want. You just okay. have to you can attribute and you can attribute it to me as well. Excellent. I will. But I do think that. that's right about you. Don't wouldn't you agree? Um, yeah. I think I, now that you now that you say that, I think my husband has kind of said similar things that I do like to kind of focus on some of the more everyday, commonplace types of themes. So yeah, I think you're right on with that. Um, I don't really have objectivity about how successfully I bring. Um, I don't know, grander feelings to those things. But, I do though, but I'm really good well, at it. So you should just take my word for it. You're real good I at it. I will take your word for it and say, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the piece that you did for the new dance was uh, was about reading a book. Yeah. And I yeah. just, it, I, I loved it. I just thought it was so beautiful and so expansive and lyrical and funny um, and, I, I loved the fact that I think there were a couple of moments in there 
during the piece that I sort of nudged Brian and was like, I know what that's about. I know what that's about. That's where she's drinking tea, right? <laughs> like all the the kind of stuff that just the little sort of wonderful details of, of the work. Anyway, I'm just sucking up to you now. Um, but I thought it was great. I think you're real neat. Um, Thank you. I think you're, you're neat too. Um, what's going to happen to us, Ann Mueller? What's going to happen to performing arts? I mean, we're not, I don't know if you saw that the the, the governor of Idaho announced today sort of the staging processes over the next you know few weeks and months right. Um, right. and that we're really looking at end of June before yeah. gatherings of more than 50 people are going to be allowed that's that's a long time from now it's a um, long time from now yeah what, whatever will become of us well I'm I'm gonna go back to resilience I mean we've survived a lot we've made it through so many different types of things I think you know, we will absolutely emerge from this. I think, as I was saying earlier, we just have to be really creative and be open to reimagining uh, how it is we function for our communities. Um, right now, I'm, we're sort of organizationally in um, an interesting moment because when all of this uh, was going down, we, looked at so we had sorry we canceled the light dark show as we talked about but we had a whole other program that was supposed to be happening um the first weekend in may so it became apparent pretty quickly that that show was not going to happen so once the organization made the call that that would need to be postponed there was the question of uh these five work weeks that we have the dancers contracted for because the dancers are contracted for a certain number of work weeks per season. Um, so they had five remaining. So we made the call that, okay, you know, we want to hold out hope that we might be able to, to gather together in the studio and to rehearse and to take class and to do what we do, but we don't know what's going to happen. So we took those five weeks and we pushed them as far to the end of the fiscal year as we possibly could. And um, we're actually starting the first of those five weeks this coming week, starting on April 27th. So we're going through this, this sort of week by week plan of, well, if we can't go in the studio this week, how are we all going to work from home? How is a company of ballet dancers going to keep being a company of ballet dancers when we're all, you know, in our living rooms? So I think we're in the process of like figuring out the nitty gritty of that question right now. And um, I think some interesting things are going to come of it. We've been doing, this isn't super unique. A lot of companies are doing this and schools are doing this as well. But we've been doing a ballet class via Zoom. So the teacher, you know, logs into Zoom and then the company joins in and uh, the teacher gives a class and everybody sort of executes it in their living room. And um, so basically, we're going to follow that model and expand it. And we're taking on several pretty creative projects that we just never would have had the time and resources to do while trying to put on a show. Including and, you're doing your own podcast, aren't you? Yes, including mm. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm meandering a little bit and I'm rambling. So I no, it's good. That's what a podcast. <laughs> literally, that's what a podcast is for: is to listen to people talk. So, I mean, it's it sounds like it sounds like 
ballet and contemporary and classical dance companies and operas and symphonies and everybody else along with theater are all sort of in exactly the same boat, right? Like our industries and our art forms are kind of predicated on the idea that artist and audience exist together in the same space at the same time. That, yes. That's a sort of baseline expectation for the performing arts, right? Yeah. Um, and now we are faced with these, this whole new series of rules and, and restrictions that make us begin to question the very nature of what we have already, we've always assumed to be sort of never changing, right? Like we'll, that we'll always be able to rehearse together, that we'll always be in the same room when we're talking about the art form, that our audiences will always be in the room when they witness the work we create. Um, and it's just about kind of navigating the new landscape in a way that honors the art form. Right. Does, that, does that seem right? It does, and and the one sort of piece of it that I feel preoccupied with right now is the role of performing arts events to create a collective experience for people in a community. And how do we preserve that part of it? And what is that part of it gonna look like? You know, if we're still able to deliver the transformative experience through virtual means, that's awesome that we're reaching people that way, but we're missing the part where everybody comes together and experiences, as you were saying, the same thing at the same time. So that'll be part of the puzzle, I guess. That That is, that is where I am preoccupied as well, right? So I'm hearing from all of my artistic theater, artistic director colleagues all across the country who are like, oh, we're gonna record this play and we're gonna put it up for on-demand viewing, right? People pay $5 and watch this performance of whatever. Um, and the great thing is that that can happen any place on the planet. People can pay their $5 from anywhere as long as they have internet. And I, I sort of roll my eyes a little bit at that and go, yeah, great, that, that's great, that's awesome. I, I'm not gonna dismiss that as a useful thing. But what I don't know that it does is it doesn't feel immediate and grounded in the geography of where your theater or your company is located, right? right. Like, what does that do for my neighbors and for my community who has been coming to see Company of Fools for 25 years? They love the theater. They have their favorite seats. They know exactly what glass of wine they're going to get. They like to see me or others at the door greeting them, um, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, which is the is the difficult to measure quality of what we do um, that feels incredibly valuable and how do we retain that right. do you do you have ideas will you tell me oh what you're gosh, thinking you're really putting me on the spot here well I mean um, you brought it up yeah you're right it's my fault <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know I'll I'll talk a little bit about one of the projects that that our dancers are gonna be working on next week and probably the week following. Um, we're calling it a, a one for one. And we're going to, we're tasking the dancers with choreographing a very short work on themselves. So a self-choreographed, self-performed work that they are creating specifically for their dancer sponsor. And then that dance will get delivered specifically to that individual. So it's literally one dance for one one audience member wow and i yeah i mean i don't know that that can be replicated on a large scale but um i don't know it's a kernel of an idea that has that that level of connection 
hopefully that will continue to um, uh, preserve or enhance that sense of ownership that people within a community hopefully have for their arts organizations and for the artists within those arts organizations. I love that idea. It's similar, uh, my friend, Mallory Marishrafi, who has appeared on this podcast, um, she works with the Huntington Theater and they do something similar called Huntington at Home, where basically they get their artistic staff and their actors and their resident company members to call their patrons and just sort of check in. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing today? How is your health? Blah, blah, blah. And at the end of that phone call, the artist says, I've prepared a monologue just for you yeah. that, I, that I wanna perform for you on the phone um, that, that really deepens that sort of intimacy and the immediate connection between actor or performer and audience member or patron, right? Really yeah. sort of specializes that. I, I love that idea. Um, I mean, I don't know that it gets us to that kind of like community created sense of of shared experience but by god it it certainly helps keep us uh deeply connected to our patrons and to our yeah. our audiences and the people who love us the most i love that absolutely yeah um you're you're great and i miss you a lot i miss you too i'm glad you're fine though i'm glad you're healthy yes me too and um i'm glad you're not that far away i know uh, it's it's sort of weird. We both ended up in Idaho within a short period of time from each other. It's true. Who would have thunk? State was calling us. <laughs> I just you were just too far away. I had to move closer to you. So yes, that's it. That was what it was. I'm just. I, what do they call? I'm a roadie. I'm an ammular roadie. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you flatter. I do. I do. But you love it. Uh, Thank you for joining me. I am Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of performing artists all across the world about how they are dealing with the current global health crisis. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of talking with one of my favorite people on the planet, Ann Mueller, who is the Artistic Associate for Ballet Idaho. She, she received her training as a result of moving like an elephant in a movement class. She began her professional career with Alabama Ballet, later joining Oregon Ballet Theater, where she enjoyed a 15-year career. As a choreographer, her work has been performed all across the globe, including at Oregon Ballet Theater, Ballet Victoria, and the Portland Ballet, where she held a position as co-artistic director. If you have enjoyed my conversation with Ann Mueller, please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at our parent organization, that's the Sun Valley Museum of Art, at their website, svmoa.org. And I will also include in the description of this podcast a link to how you can donate to support Ballet Idaho's important work. Um, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon, and I hope to come and see a show when the, when the, the buildings are open and we can all gather together for shared collective experiences. In the meantime, we'll bring some directly to you. Okay, awesome, that's great. And we should just figure out a Zoom cocktail hour again too, because those are always fun. Yes, please. Okay, talk to you soon, thank you. Okay, bye. bye.